When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the big topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me for this last Transfer Window Podcast of 2020 is, of course, Mr. Duncan Castles. We'll be bringing news on Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United, as well as much more. First, we start at Stamford Bridge, Duncan. Um, and despite speculation to the contrary over Frank Lampard's future as head coach at the club, it is our information here at the Transfer Window that he has the full confidence of Chelsea's main director and, of course, uh, de facto chief executive Marina Gunovskaya with regards to his tenure as manager of the club. And indeed, that will be backed in January, um, first of all, by offering Olivier Giroud, who's someone Lampard recognises and rates very highly um, as a key member of his squad with a new contract. Um, of course, the club policy is not to offer any player over 30 more than a year. Juru has six months left in his contract as things stand, but negotiations will begin with his agent with regards to a one-year extension. And not only that, as we have reported consistently on the transfer window, uh, Declan Rice, the West Ham defensive midfielder, who Lampard covets very much with regards to his ability to play both in a back three and uh, just ahead of defence in terms of uh, playing as a disruptor uh, where he plays for West Ham. That chase will be upped in this window upcoming. However, the expectation at Chelsea is that perhaps West Ham would prefer to sell in the summer and not uh, in the January window. However, um, Chelsea will continue to pursue it in both windows. And with the player, as they understand it, um, intimating that he would uh, certainly be very attracted to a move to West London, then that's something they will continue to pursue. Um, Duncan, it's... I wouldn't say that you know when any manager is under pressure because he loses a couple of games or three games on the trot and then uh, you know draws at home with Aston Villa, uh, there will come questions about uh, whether or not uh, his job is safe. But I don't really see um, where the um, questions are coming in terms of Lampard, given um, his performance so far but also his status at Chelsea with regards to um, in the eyes of the fans and indeed the administration of the club. 
Yeah, I think Chelsea have a lot invested in Frank Lampard, um, literally, in terms of transfer market. They, they've made a number of changes to the team, significant changes to the team with Lampard in charge. Um, as we've discussed on this podcast many times, those were compromise buys. A lot of the, the, the buys were di- driven by the club rather than by Lampard. He had priorities elsewhere, um, particularly in central defence. They focused mainly on young attacking players. They're overloaded with those. Um, we've seen throughout Lampard's time at the club his um, dissatisfaction with the maturity of the team, their, their inability to um, maintain good situations in certain games, um, to control matches in the right way. And, and that is still clearly a work in progress. Um, the results in the Premier League are disappointing. They are six points off a not particularly fast pace um, with a game more played than Liverpool. They've dropped down to sixth place um, in a season where there is opportunity to win the title because uh, no one is producing consistent results uh, and everyone has been dropping points at certain places and and at unexpected times. But I think um, focusing too much on the Premier League and early season and we're still not even halfway through this campaign, neglects what Lampard achieved in the Champions League, which is to go through the group stage unbeaten, um, being quite unfortunate in drawing Atletico in the, the knockout round, one of one of the hardest ties that was possible for them to pick. But there has been um, overall a progress at Chelsea under Lampard's management. It's not been perfect. There are, there are areas of naivety, not just from the players, but also from the, the coaching staff. But as you say, there, Lampard is a good fit to Chelsea from the perspective of su- supporters having a huge amount of faith in him. His preparedness to play young players, to promote from the academy, something that Roman Abramovich has wanted for over a decade um, and successfully integrate those players into the team. He has not, um, despite these disputes he's had with Granovskaya over recruitment, he's not gone public with his discontent. Um, he's not pressured, pressured her in a public fashion, which other coaches, Antonio Conte, Jose Mourinho being obvious examples, would do in the past. So I think that's appreciated within the, the Chelsea hierarchy. Um, the other side, of course, is when you say that they, they're backing him and they have faith in them and they've, they've told him they will support him in the market, we know, despite it being Frank Lampard, that it remains Chelsea. And if things continue to fall off the expectations of the owner and Granovskaya, then that pressure will come back on from the, from the top level because they've never been shy about dismissing managers if they feel that is the... Uh, most appropriate or the easiest way to turn around results? I suspect um, of all the coaches and in the Abramovich era, Lampard would probably be the most difficult decision to make in terms of uh, dismissing him. Although, of course, uh, we all know football is a results-based business and so if results don't come up to expectation, then the expectation is that you're heading out the door. Um, I would say that with Lampard, uh, 
this is a young team, a team that he's still moulding, uh, as you referred to, Duncan. Uh, he was, uh, let's say, gifted players um, by the club rather than um, his own strategic uh, recruitment uh policy uh, in terms of what he wanted. I think it's very interesting that um, what Lampard wants to do is create a team in uh, his own image, i.e. the ones that he played in and under certain coaches. And of course, those teams were dominated by a very, very solid spine. So you had Petr Cech in goal, John Terry at central defence, Lampard in central midfield, and Didier Drogba as a dominant centre forward. And right now, he doesn't feel he has all of those pieces in the jigsaw uh, to fit with that philosophy. And probably most importantly, it's the central defence issue, which is dominating his thoughts with regards to how he can make further progress with this team. He clearly has um, a lot of attacking talent um, and in Abraham and Giroud has good options with regards to striker uh, as well as having good options in midfield, but it's central defence. And of course, that has been a weakness for Chelsea. Conceding goals has been their weakness. And we saw it again this week and last weekend against Arsenal. Um where players are making fairly rudimentary mistakes, um, individual errors, which uh, in La a team that Lampard played in would not have been either expected nor tolerated. Uh, and you would like to think uh, that um, having already had these discussions with Gunnarskaya um, with regards to recruitment and what he needs, that the uh, his own thoughts are not, or his certainly his needs are should be listened to, because results and performances in defence specifically are bearing out uh, his desire to augment that defence and bring in a dominant centre half. Thiago Silva has been very very efficient, but at the same time he doesn't have a regular partner in central defence, as we've seen in the last three weeks or so, when Rudiger, Christensen, uh, Zuma have all featured and not performed to the standard that Chelsea expect. I think that's right. And I think also when we're talking about futures of managers in the Premier League, you've got to realise that this is a different period from any we've experienced before in Premier League football. There is a real pattern that clubs do not want to dismiss their coaches. Um, obviously, there's a financial aspect to that. I think there's also an aspect of no fans or very few fans being in the stadium. So you don't get that exposure, that criticism when performances are going badly that you're, you're used to having at a Premier League club. It's all on in the media and on social media now. And until um, your good friend Sam Allardyce was appointed, we'd gone almost an entire year without a single dismissal in the Premier League. And um, I don't think that will continue to the end of the season. I don't think we will see no more casualties before the end of the season once relegation um, hoves into view, once um, places in the Champions League or in European competition um, become tenuous. 
then uh, there might be that tendency to switch manager will come back as a as a strategic move for clubs but I don't think we're going to see a lot of dismissals going forward and that kind of usual expectation we have that a run of bad results at a top club um, brings the manager's future into serious jeopardy just isn't being uh, carried out in, in these current conditions. We see Mikel Arteta surviving. Um, we see Frank Lampard getting this vote of confidence, although I think that vote of confidence is justified um, given the overall development of the of the team. Um, we see Ole Gunnar Solskjaer surviving various crises during his Manchester United time uh, without that change being made that might have been made in more normal uh, environments, more normal circumstances uh, where clubs have greater financial strength and uh, more day-to-day -day pressure on them in the stadium. We mentioned Big Sam there, uh, Duncan. I, I would have thought that um, at some point in the first 15 minutes he'd been tempted to park the Granada in front of uh, his own goal against Leeds um, before they lost 5-0. Apparently the first time he's ever uh, lost five goals as a Premier League manager. Um, he's certainly been also, he's certainly been parking a large number of players in front of that goal in this <laughs> short period at West Brom. Bromwich Albion, you have to say, with uh, with some significant success at, at Liverpool. Indeed, indeed, it was. Yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, at the same time, it was a scintillating performance from Leeds. I just wanted to mention it because uh, the football that they played, um, as has been mentioned, uh, is a bit bonkers, I think, was the phrase that was used by Allardyce ahead of that game, um, but uh, certainly justified when they come up with a performance like that. Speaking of defending, Duncan, uh, Champions Liverpool remain top of the table, but also um, are experiencing even more problems in uh, their defensive lineup with injury to Joel Matip and the possibility of having to yet again play um, relatively untried and tested young players in the team in the weeks ahead with regards to the f holiday fixtures, which of course come thick and fast. And you have news about a potential purchase in January, uh, which would obviously strengthen their squad and potentially give them another option. Yeah, I think in that West Bromwich Albion game, you see some of the issues with playing young defenders um, and, and the way in which players were being caught out in the few breaks that West Brom had. Um, it's difficult unless you've got someone who's absolutely top class as a young defender, particularly to fit them into that Liverpool system where Klopp likes to push his full-backs high and, uh, and expose those centre-backs. Um, we have discussed this quite a lot in the podcast. I think the last report we did, we said that Liverpool's strategy was to wait through um, December and see how they got on with Fabinho at centre-back and with uh, the youngsters or midfield other midfielders being played alongside them, through, see if they could get through that difficult period um, in a strong position before deciding whether to act or not. Um, Dio Upamecano, we mentioned to you, was a, a strong candidate. He's also an expensive candidate. What they have now and what they're working on, um, according to my information, is 
a, a deal for a player who'd be significantly cheaper. Um, that's Sven Botman, who is in his first season at Lille, transferred from Ajax in the summer for an initial €8 million, Euros, has been outstanding at Lille, um, called up to the Netherlands full international squad in November. He's still very young. Um, he only turns 21 next month. He is tall and quick. And, and I think this is probably one of the things that factors into Liverpool's assessment. It's incredibly strong in one-on-one duels. Factor one statistical analysis, he is the best um, on one-on-one duels in the big five leagues across Europe this season. Now, obviously, that's important when you play Liverpool's way because you need um, a player who can win um, head-to-head against opponents who can um, win aerial balls. Uh, Klopp likes to to get his defenders from time to time to gamble and and win the ball against the opposition to start attacks. Um, I think he's well-suited statistically, and we know from statistical perspective that's important to Liverpool's recruitment. I think he's also well-suited in where he is at present. Lille have very significant financial difficulties. Um, in fact, the club has just been sold by their previous owner, Gerard Lopez, to Merlin Partners. Um, French football in general is struggling financially outside Paris Saint-Germain because of the broadcast deal they have and non-payments that are coming from one of their major broadcast partners. My understanding is that Leo would be willing to sell the player probably for twice uh, and a little bit more what they paid Ajax for him in the summer. So you're looking at a 20-year-old a, a um, just turning international defender who has fantastic statistical attributes that you can get for a price way below um, any similar talent in the English league. Um, Liverpool have done this kind of thing before. It is a good fit to their strategy. My information is that they they have been calling and speaking to Botman's agent and that Botman's agent um, likes the sound of the conversations and believes there is a strong possibility that they will um, decide to make an offer in January for the player. Um, one other thing which I think would be interesting to Liverpool supporters is that Botman plays alongside Jose Font, um, the veteran Portugal defender at Lille this season and Font has played with you know a, a, an array of top class centre backs in his career um, including Virgil van Dijk, Toby Alderweireld, Pepe in the in the Portugal national team and Gabriel um, last season who's now at Arsenal. Um, from what I understand of Font's um, impression of Botman he thinks he is the best of all of them. Um, he describes him as a machine and a man who doesn't make mistakes and also indicates that he's a young player playing alongside an experienced professional. He's very open to learning, um, taking instruction, improving his game. You know, these are all attributes that you look for in the signing and they're all the kind of attributes that Liverpool have been very focused on um, when they recruit players in the past. So you can see why they're having conversations there. Um, and you can see from from the cost perspective why it seems to be a good potential fit for that January deal. Would you see him as a starter, Duncan? Because obviously he is a very young player who is still learning his trade. Someone who, um, as you said, is open to um, 
his education from other senior professionals. But is he any better than what Liverpool already have? Because they have, you know, Klopp has been blooding two young centre-backs um, on different occasions with regards to partnering Fabinho, who, although is not a natural centre-back, has performed very well there. From what I've seen of those two centre-backs, I, I would think he's significantly better. I'm, I'm not sure either of them are going to turn into um, Liverpool-level central defenders. Might be wrong. But um, Botman, as I say, highly regarded by um, people in the sport, people playing alongside him, people assessing him. Not interestingly so highly regarded by Ajax, who preferred to sell him and retain uh, Persures in, in the summer. Um, I talked to someone at Ajax about that and what he thought of Botman and he said, yeah, he, he is a, he's a very good player uh, and would be well suited to the English league and the way he plays. But people at the club thought Shures was the better bet. So we took the money from Leo, um, and allowed him to move on. And there was, um, some question from, from my friend at Ajax of whether the club had made the right decision on that one. I think he, uh, the sense I got was that he thought Botman should have been retained, perhaps in partnership with Shures. I think he's ready to play, um, although young. Um, and look, if you look from the perspective of you expect Van Dijk and Gomez to be back next season, and then you have this third um, centre-back who's capable of competing with Gomez for the place, capable of being a long-term partner for Van Dijk, capable even with that age range of succeeding Van Dijk, should Van Dijk um, decide to pursue a move elsewhere. And we've seen Van Dijk, like Mo Salah, like Sadio Mane, um, makes kind of indications that they'd be interested in in playing elsewhere in the, in the final stage of their career. Um, like it's, buying players is never a perfect science, but... Um, this strikes me as being a very intelligent move and an opportunity for Liverpool to secure someone who is extremely talented in that area of the field at a reasonable price before other Premier League teams and before other, other teams in, in Europe um, have the opportunity to buy him because of the COVID um, restrictions on, on transfers. Historically, Liverpool in the last three years specifically, have been very clever in their transfer dealings. And a move for Botman is sure to be one which they've researched um, expansively and looked at both from the data and science analysis as well as the scouting one. Um, at the same time, uh, as I said, there's got to be a little bit of um, apprehension about introducing a young player like that into the Premier League uh, in a season where Liverpool are currently top of the division and um, they are not as impregnable as they have been uh, in the last 18 months with regards to conceding goals, as we've seen. And also uh, the fact that uh, they seem to be uh, succumbing on some occasions to the pressure of being defending champions of the Premier League. Um, do you think that with Botman, um, it would be an easy integration, Duncan? Uh, people like, uh, who, sorry, players who come from Ajax generally tend actually to uh, um, integrate very well and, and um, acclimatise quite quickly. 
uh, as we've seen many times um, with uh, players who've come from Ajax to the Premier League. Luis Suarez at Liverpool being the optimum example. A January transfer as well. Um, Suarez is one. Yeah, look, Ajax have a history of producing top centre-backs um, and a history of producing top centre-backs who've done well in the Premier League. Um, January is not ideal. Everyone knows January is not an ideal team time to move leagues, to move countries. You don't have much preparation time. Um, the adaptation process becomes a lot harder. We know with Klopp's teams that he tends to blood players slowly um, so that they can learn the system and learn where to be on the pitch. Um, and that, that has been an important factor with players like Fabinho, for example, who was hardly used in his first six months at, at Liverpool. Andy Robertson, a similar process. And I think you, you see Andy Robertson talking about how he had to learn to defend um, the right way in, in Klopp's system before he was trusted by the coach and, and turned into the, the player, the important player he is. Um, so yes, those factors are there and they're perhaps greater at Liverpool than other clubs because because of the the, the way Klopp likes to um, bring players in slowly. But they're short of bodies in, in that area of the field um, and uh, it is an opportunity to buy a player at, at a relatively cheap price. Then it's down to the player to perform and protect himself and the manager to protect him. Uh, but yeah, you make a point. It's it's not um, it's not a simple process um, to take someone in January, particularly a young player, and put him under the spotlight. Sometimes it can work very well. Look at Manchester United and Bruno Fernandes um, and the and his year he has had in the Premier League, and you now have people arguing that he has been the best player in the Premier League across that one year period which is probably stretching a bit too far but there's absolutely no question that he's been the best player at Manchester United during that year um, following his January transfer and he didn't need the adaptation time um, it wasn't a painful episode for him We'll come on to Manchester United a little bit later in the pod but for the moment we'll go from a Lille player in uh, to a former Lille sporting director, uh, someone who all of you who listen to the podcast regularly will be very familiar with, Luis Campos, um, who, as Duncan uh, exclusively revealed uh, earlier uh, this year, um, had a contract dispute with regards to his position at the French Ligue 1 club and was actively uh, looking to escape the contract that he had um, and was effectively put on gardening leave. We we reported this in October um, ahead of anyone else, and uh, he effectively put himself on gardening leave. Um, he told Gerard Lopez and told Leo that he didn't want to continue at the club um, and wouldn't be acting um, as sports director, um, not actually his official position at Leo. Um, and he was actually employed separately from Leo via a company um, that Gerard Lopez runs 
to to work on recruitment, but to take up effectively sports director roles at that club, um, not just the recruitment of players, but also the management of the entire football environment, handling players, um, organising medical staff, working and coaching staff, the, the full gamut. Um, he has now extracted himself from that contract um, with Lopez um, and therefore with Leo. So he is free um, to talk to other clubs and move to um, another division. Um, he is, as you say, on the shortlist at Manchester United. Um, he is also, I, I can tell you, um, of interest to a couple of the biggest clubs in European football in that Juventus and the presidential candidates at Barcelona have been speaking to him about the possibility of moving to those um, two clubs um, this coming year. So uh, what you have is um, one of the top recruitment specialists in European football. Um, we've talked about this quite a few times on the podcast, um, well over a billion euros of transfer fees raised during his time at Monaco and Lille, um, creating teams that, in Monaco's case, uh, won the French division against Paris Saint-Germain's huge spending power uh, and went deep into the, the Champions League at Lille, um, came second in the in the French division uh, and also qualified for the Champions League. Um, I don't think there's anyone who questions this, this man's ability to identify talent and build um, well-structured teams that compete at the highest level. So I don't think it's any surprise that you have Barcelona and Juventus um, contacting him and asking whether he's prepared to move there or I think a surprise that Manchester United have him on that short list but I think there's going to be a bit of a battle for his services over the coming months now he's settled his legal dispute and is free to uh, to sign a contract with one of those major clubs So Barcelona Manchester United not quite the forces uh, you could say with some confidence that they once were so therefore a rebuilding job which someone like Camposh I'm sure would relish in terms of recruitment Juventus slightly different and very much established as the best club in Serie A although of course they're trailing AC Milan uh, in this year's uh, Scudetto so I wonder Duncan um what would be his preferred option with regards to where his next job was? Because um, as we have spoken about many times, will he have the mandate at Manchester United? We know that there's a lot of, um, let's just say, uh, interference in terms of recruitment at Barcelona from presidential uh, candidates, stroke presidents, once they have been elected, and also... You have a very powerful man in Fabio Paratici um, at Juventus as well. It seems to me like um, he's got quite a tough choice in terms of what will make him happy in his job and most effective. Well, one of the reasons he left Leo was because of interference in uh, transfer activity last Oh, you've summer. answered the question then. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Paratici, I don't think you will see him at Juventus beyond um, the the termination of this season. Um, I, I think that is the reason why they are um, sending out someone like Campus because they have made a decision that they need a change of um, of sports director there after some some bad decisions in the market um, and uh, you know a, a wage bill that uh, that's become quite problematic for them. Um, look, if you're a director of football, sports director, and you have clubs like that. Uh, interest in your services you have some intriguing interview process to go through and you also have a degree of leverage uh, in terms of saying when I take a job I need to know what the mandate is uh, what degree of control I have um, whether this is going to be the right club to fit uh, the way I want to work and to uh, ensure that I'm successful at this level of football because what you're doing there leaving clubs like Monaco and Lille and moving up to the the, the top tier of the game is uh, it's it's a different job um, with more focus on performance um, with less patience about results with selling players being less important than the, the team you structure obviously the sales process in terms of shifting players out is important, but you're not buying players to make a profit, um, which is what the campus was particularly successful at, at Monaco and Lille. Um, he does have experience working in, in one of the giants of European football in that he worked alongside Jose Mourinho at Real Madrid um, as a tactical scout and also as a, a recruitment specialist there, not as sports director. But he, he has been at that level of the game. Um, yeah, I, th- I think his status is such in football at present that uh, the decision-making process will be biased on his side. He, will, he should have um, the opportunity to pick the job that suits him best rather than having to jump um, at the first one that's offered to him. Back to Italy, Duncan, and Paolo Dybala, um, the Argentinian striker, um, is facing a decision regarding his future. His contract expires in June 2022 at the Turin Club. Um, He has been offered, we understand, 11.5 million euros gross for a extension of three years to his current deal. His agent, George Anton, is due to speak with uh, Agnelli and Paratici at Juventus in the coming days with regards to deal or no deal because the club is becoming perplexed by his indecision whether he wants to stay or whether he wants to leave. Now, we know that there have been conversations, negotiations with both Manchester United and Spurs over the last year to 18 months regarding a potential transfer of Dybala to the Premier League. And those discussions will certainly be continued 
should he turn down this final offer from Juve to extend his contract. It's also our understanding that United see Dybala as a long-term solution to um, what has been a short-term solution in Edison's Cavani um, in terms of his age. And Dybala, of course, at 26, has the best years of his career ahead of him and would suit their cultural reboot policy with regards to age and uh, the style of football they want to play. Uh, they still see, and Solskjaer still sees, Rashford as a wide player, as well as uh, Mason Greenwood as well. Therefore, any discussion and um, negotiation with Dybala and his agent would be about a summer transfer, not January. But this is something which uh, I think is with great interest being watched around Europe, Duncan, um, because Dybala has certainly been an extremely effective and um, very impactful player at Juve. Um, what do you believe the chances are of him leaving Italy? Because after all, he seems to be very settled there and um, has already turned down moves to the Premier League on two occasions. We've seen this process before with Dybala. Um, we've seen periods in where Juventus or the coach has been ready to shift him out. And obviously those long conversations with Manchester United and, and Tottenham. Um, Tottenham a particularly surprising late attempt to secure a very expensive player which fell through um, in both of those cases my understanding is that Dybala did not want to leave um, his preference was to remain in Italy uh, his preference was to remain at Juventus um, with the improved contract um, and I think any club talking to him at present would take that into consideration as to whether they are being used by the, the player and his um, representatives to try and leverage a better position at Juve. Um, Juventus are under pressure for their title this season. Um, I think where they go next season will depend significantly on what happens with that Serie A campaign. Um, if they do lose the title, then you do have the possibility for some radical changes of playing staff. And you have the possibility that Juventus will say, sorry, Paolo Dybala, we're not going to meet the wages you want and are asking for, and we're placing you on the market. Uh, and we're gonna use the money we get from your transfer fee to fund changes. Um, it is the case that Manchester United are examining the market for a striker. Um, they have Cavani on a very expensive deal in terms of net salary, um, something they did right at the end of the window, which kind of tells you that he was not their first choice for that position. Um, I think he's proved a good signing on the football field, which is not a surprise given his the quality of his play throughout his career and the way he looks after himself physically uh, and the, the degree of ambition he has to succeed 
on the playing pitch. So I think they're in they're in quite a good position in the sense that they have that option for a second year on Cavani's contract. Um, they can use that to survey the scene, um, knowing that they have a player who offers them a different dimension to their already very strong, very quick attack um, player who is who's comfortable in the air, comfortable with his back to goal. Um, he does round out their attacking options. Um, so I, th- I think what they'll do is look at options on the marketplace, see what the cost is going to be to get a younger striker in if he's available, um, see if it's a player like Dybala is serious about moving to Manchester United should Juventus decide to sell him and then make a, a final decision on where they go for that striker um, for the for the 2021-22 the season. Conversations that I've had, Duncan, with um, various uh, recruitment heads, uh, chief executives, chairman, over the last six to eight weeks have all been about goals. Please get me some goals. Get some goals, please, in January. Find me a striker who's going to score me 10, 15 goals between now and the end of the season. And as I always say, you're asking the hardest question in football because if a club has got a striker who's going to produce that, they're not going to sell him um, because they've got the same requirements as you. And uh, it will take a very special circumstance to um, get a striker out of a club um, who is going to fulfil what you need, uh, which means usually a really high fee. Um, and when I've put that to back to the people who've asked me the question, um, they've said, well, we don't have any money to spend, so it'll need to be a loan or you know, some kind of uh, delayed transfer fee, uh, which means obviously loan with obligation to buy. Um, Dubal does not obviously come into that that context, but um, in terms of the market generally, and of course it opens on Friday, um, do we think there's going to be a lot of business done or do or do you think that um, it will be relatively quiet with regards to um, the amount of movement? I think it's, it's an unusual market. It's a market where there is not a lot of money to play with. Um, there are clubs who, like you described, they want particularly to get goals in. They want to try and turn their season around. But majority of them don't have serious budgets to play with. Um, so you're looking at loan deals. You're looking at um, loans with option to buy. Um, and then you have a few clubs and Liverpool maybe in that category saying um are there bargains to be had in this market because there are clubs with serious financial problems um and not a lot of liquidity going around can we pick off someone now before the summer market when the competitors aren't going to get involved um and we can secure ourselves a talent who can make a fundamental difference to the team going forward and we weren't in a covid period last january 
but we were in a period where most of the big teams were not prepared to spend heavily. Um, you had clubs like Barcelona, obviously, in the, in the midst of that financial crisis, wanting to do things, but having to be very, very creative in how they did them. And then Manchester United went and got Bruno Fernandes, who has made a fund- fundamental difference to the team. And, and I think the biggest reason why they managed to secure Bruno Fernandes in that window was they didn't have competition from a more attractive club who were um, doing better in the Champions League. Um, who were able to make the deal happen immediately. Right at the end of that period, Barcelona tried to construct something where um, Bruno Fernandes would go on loan uh, to another Spanish club for six months before signing in the summer. But um, they weren't able to get that complex deal through and Fernandes has had enough of the of the whole drama of, of that January window of the way Manchester United tried to chisel the price down from Sporting and just said, no, I finally got my exit. They've offered the money that's acceptable to sporting. The money's acceptable to me. I'm going there. So I think they, that kind of deal is the one that might happen. Um, but generally you're, you're looking at very straightened circumstances for the majority of clubs in, in European football at present. I think we are indeed. Um, and of course the transfer window podcast will bring you the news of all the big moves and the small moves and the loan moves uh, and the free transfers first before anyone else as we always like to do so uh, keep listening to us uh, when we come back in the new year we're gonna uh, talk a little bit now Duncan about uh, Manchester United who have catapulted I think I could say, into second place in the Premier League. And so I'm expecting you to tell me that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is a genius and a manager whose destiny was always to be Manchester United manager and someone who will be there for 23 years and win 13 titles, just like Sir Alex Ferguson. Would that be correct? Um, Do you think I've changed my name to Gary Neville over the Christmas period? (laughs) Well, you might have done. (laughs) Just do a manc accent. <laughs> um, they have a look. They've they've got themselves in a very good position in the league. Um, incredibly, really, when you consider the the quality of performances over those fifteen games, we've discussed this before. Um, they're several points better off than they should have been in terms of um, certain matches where refereeing decisions went in their favour, or um, the ball just wouldn't go in the net. Um, a team close to your heart, Brighton, can can tell you all about that. They are on a good run now. The The attack is um, more dangerous, I think, particularly against opponents who give them space than it's ever been under Solskjaer, um, probably as it, than it's been since Ferguson left the club. And we saw that in the Leeds United game where um, Bielsa basically opened up the midfield for them to attack into. They scored early and they won comfortably. Um, is he the man to to take them to those 13 titles? Look, the Wolves game last night, I think, was kind of characteristic of this Manchester United side. Um, they win in the very last minute um, with what Solskjaer himself described as a lucky goal um, against 
opponents who had uh, more than a day less preparation time going into the match. Um, as Solskjaer again himself said, it was not right that uh, Manchester United played on Saturday in the lunchtime fixture. Um, Wolves played Tottenham on Sunday evening and then Wolves are expected to go to Old Trafford and, and play uh, on a Tuesday night. Um, you saw in Nuno's selection the impact of that. Already had uh, several injuries. He ends up giving two players their Premier League debuts. Um, playing a very young side. Uh, he puts Adama Traore into a central attacking role with Pedro Neto. Only really the midfield of that Wolves team was the, the Wolves team we, we know and has, has been so successful in the Premier League. Yet, first half of the game, um, Nuno's selections and, and strategy an ability to set up a team in a way that will cause problems to Manchester United was evident. They had the better of that half. They had a, created more chances. They would, I think, have been ahead if it wasn't for David De Gea. Um, in the end, they lose it as they tire at the end of the match. But ask yourself the question on the basis of what you saw last night, who is the more competent coach? terms of what he did with his resources, strained resources and what he, um, how he set the team out and how he gave his, his team a great chance of getting a result um, and was undone mainly by physical factors. Your, your answer would not be Solskjaer to that question. Well, I'm sure most of you are shocked by Duncan's answer to that question about um, Solskjaer's brilliance and getting mine into the second place in the Premier League. But that's okay, because uh, there's a long way to go, and uh, Duncan's analysis generally tends to be very accurate. So, as uh, this is the final podcast of 2020, a very difficult year for all of us, and uh, we empathise, of course, with everyone with regards to that. Uh, we normally do, as you know, a heroes and villains section at this point. Um, and in the spirit of goodwill and also um, of optimism uh, going forward into 2021, uh, we're not going to do a villain this week. We're just going to do a hero. And for that, we're going to pay tribute to someone who was a genuine visionary in football someone who many of you may not have experienced, many of you may not be aware of, but those who are, um, then you will welcome this. And those who haven't uh, experienced him, I hope, will uh, open your eyes to the genius that is Jim McLean. Duncan, I'm handing over to you. Yeah, we, we usually do Hero of the Week, as you say. I think for this final podcast of 2020 we're going to do hero of certainly of my childhood uh, in some in many ways the hero of my lifetime in terms of what I've ended up doing um, I, I said on Twitter the other day that um, I fell in love with football because of Jim McLean's management of Dundee United the team I supported as a, a child um, and I, I think that's yeah, it's absolutely the case. I would not be a football journalist. I would not think about football in the way I do if I hadn't been lucky enough to grow up watching 
his side and studying the way he set football teams out. Um, he passed away on Boxing Day, um, age 83. If you aren't aware of him, um, one of the best references uh, you can have was what his great um, rival in, in Scottish football, Sir Alex Ferguson, and great friend throughout, uh, basically almost throughout McLean's and Ferguson's life, um, said about Jim McLean as a testament. He said, one of the greatest coaches to come out of Scotland. Certainly no one ever surpassed him. My adversaries in England were always Jose Mourinho, Rafa Benitez or Arsene Wenger. But believe me, my biggest adversary in football was Jim McLean. When you think back, it's almost absurd what he achieved. He took a club and changed it completely. He took players and made them better. His legacy in football is that anyone who came across him, whether as an opposing manager or as a player, knows he was a fantastic coach. Um, as ever from Ferguson, I think that's a fantastic summary. Um, I had the, the honour and privilege to, to interview Jim McLean um, on the 25th anniversary of uh, his uh, greatest side by his own description, um, the, the 1982-83 team that won the Scottish League, um, Dundee United's only Scottish title success, and then went to... Um, the semi-final of the European Cup. Uh, they would have played Liverpool in the final. They went out to Roma, having beaten them 2-0 in the first leg. Um, Roma famously bribed the referee ahead of that match, um, admitted by um, the Roma directorate in, in years subsequent because they wanted to be in that final that was being played at their, their home ground. Um, and Jim gave me four hours of his time. It was... I think without a doubt the highlight of my journalistic career to to be able to sit down and and talk with someone I'd uh, I'd uh, grown up uh, learning the game from and just uh, we focused it was for UEFA Champions magazine and we focused on how he managed how he coached how he trained the team the tactics he used um, the things he was doing in the 1980s which uh, have some of which are only really talked about publicly as being standard parts of the game in the last 10 years. So what I'm going to do is, is just pick out a, a couple of bits of audio from that interview where Jim talks about the 1983-1984 the team and, and his tactics um, and also how he had the team pressing as a, as a way, not of defending so much, but as a way of attacking opponents um, before the phrase was even um, popular or, or regularly heard in, uh, in football parlance. What's the doing for gegging Preston? <laughs> Is it just a really high press? <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's see if it's in this, uh, in this recording of the interview. And uh, I would say that we played more uh, a four, uh, three and a half, two and a half. Ralph Milne definitely was a, a forward yeah. working back a wee bit. Uh -huh. Bannon was a midfield player working back, a uh, working forward an awful lot. Yeah. And was still uh, giving as many crosses as probably Ralph Milne would. Uh, but uh, the two strikers were uh, David Dodds and Paul Sturrock, but we didn't play. I always believe when you play a big uh, 
tall centre forward against two big centre halves. The big centre halves are happy. Yeah. Uh, we always played Stirrup through the middle, and David Dodds usually played on the inside of the right back. Okay. Uh, rather than David wasn't a good player with his back to goal. Uh huh. So I decided that if I could get him half turn most of the time, and as a result, when when they're in the centre forward, their backs to goal all the time yeah. because the balls are coming from both sides. But when David Dodds was half turned in an inside leg position and coming in a lot, Bannon was going to do the width, giving us the width on that side anyway. So David Dodds honestly was magnificent and was scored more goals because he was coming free rather than the man marked. Yeah. And uh, tactics are vital uh, and people think, uh, and I agree, they are vital. But the most important thing, without any shadow of doubt, is nicking them about a wee bit here and a wee bit there to get the best out of your players. And I'll tell you something, David Dodds would never have been as good a player playing as a centre-forward against two centre-halves mm-hmm. because his, his movement wasn't fantastic as a centre-forward back to goal. Yeah. But when he was half-turned, he was brilliant. And the balls he won in there even fighting the right back instead of fighting against big set of halves. Uh-huh. And there was definitely, uh, there's no way we were a straightforward 4 uh, 2 4 or a straightforward 4 yeah. four, uh, four, four, 2 four. Uh, either because we definitely, uh, even now and again, David Dodds would be working back, it could have been a 4 5 1. But uh, uh, straight lines, I don't like straight lines in tactics anyway. Uh, and we definitely, David Neary, for instance, was always the one that was uh, the Willie Muller type player, the cover uh, centre half, and yeah. most of the balls in there, Paul Hegarty went for between the two centre halves, and David Neary was the one that uh, brought them up for the back and kept them up for the back, uh, which was vital because we believed in defending. Uh, Ten yards inside their half, rather than defending your own box. If you defend your own 18-yard box, you lose goals. You will always lose goals. So we defend. We definitely defended earlier. The, the forwards defended, starting to defend them, but we allowed them to start somewhere around uh, 10 or 15 yards in the other half, not your half, uh-huh. in the other half. And as a result, it made David Neary kept the back four up. Uh, because if David Neary went away back, it was stupid defending early. Yeah. But we could defend early in particular in Europe because of David Neary and Paul Hegarty and Richard Goff and Morris Malpass uh, staying up the pattern, making sure it was condensed. We, we used to tell them the circle of the park and they had to be up at the circle, which was 10 yards in their own half. Uh-huh. And when the opposition got possession of the ball and the goalie and whatever, they had not to retreat anywhere past 10 yards. We allowed 10 yards into our own half uh-huh. and they had to stay up as much as they possibly could. David Neary was the one that kept them up. Because uh-huh. slower players, Paul Hegarty would rather have defended a wee bit further back. Uh-huh. But the further you go, the more easier it is for them to get a shot at goal. Whatever. In, in terms of getting the ball from the opposition, 
People well, talk about pressing now. I never heard the word pressing until. Well, it's simple. If if if, if Paul Sturrock wins the, the ball, not that he ever did. <laughs> if David Dodds wins the ball off a defender, you've actually only the two second halves to beat the goalie at the most. Now, what chance of a goal have you got, or if David Neary wins the ball? I'd rather David Dodds win the ball. If David Neary wins it, then the whole team will go through. Uh-huh. The goalie gets it, then the whole team will go through. Uh-huh. And it's simple, defend early. And it's not you don't lose goals, it's more important that you get score goals and the chances you get. That's the wrong statement, actually. It's equally important. But honestly, defend early. We were brilliant in Europe and and away from home. We used to love away from home. And we definitely uh, lived on defending 10 yards in their half. Don't go stupid and defend away at their 18 yard box or that. Let them have the ball in their 18 yard box. But once they progressed to the halfway down their half, that's when we then went as a unit. And when you're condensed in the whole length of the park, with mm-hmm. loads of spaces, mm-hmm. when you're condensed in half the length of the park, even less than half, because David Neary and Emmett to keep up well out the 18 yard ball. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, you're not giving them space. When you have possession of the ball, space is vital. When they have possession of the ball, space is vital to, to condense, to not give them space, if you understand that. Yeah, yeah. So you want space when you've got the ball, yeah. you don't want them to have space when they've got the ball. You hunt the numbers, again, if the ball stirrup run at a defender, for instance, he had to be supported by David Dodds and Ralph Milne and the midfield, or he didn't do it. Yeah. It was a waste of time doing it. Yeah. And they get one player running and pressing the ball. So that was Duncan Castles interviewing Jim McLean. Uh, again, as I said, a visionary in football. Interesting, Duncan, um, when he said about defending and the t- 10 yards into the opposition half. Uh, that was in 1983-84. And uh, Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp have received huge amounts of credit and plaudits for doing the press now, both the, in the 2000s and, and obviously in the last just five or six years. And yet there was Jim McLean doing it with Dundee United uh, in that period. It's almost like well, you know, he invented that high press and other people have copied it since and used it much to their advantage with regards to achieving success. Yeah, I asked him asked him about that and asked whether where he picked up that technique and he said it was just something he'd learnt um, thinking about football uh, through the course of managing, um, like many of the other... Uh, techniques and tactics he was using. I mean, he talks very um, generously about Largs, the, the SFA coaching school in the west coast of Scotland, actually, where he uh, he shared the room with uh, Alex Ferguson when they were taking their, their badges at the same time. He tells a funny story about how Ferguson copied uh, uh, for his exam a exercise that McLean had, had done at, at Largs earlier that week. <laughs> 
I, I can't imagine there being many teacups that were still intact in that particular room. <laughs> and I, th- I think if I remember correctly, um, Ferguson had just come back from his, his wedding. So he effectively spent his honeymoon with Jim McLean in a, in a hotel room in Largs. But no, no, no better person to spend your honeymoon with. <laughs> if you want to be successful in your, uh, your footballing career, you certainly uh, get advantage from it. But he, yeah, he, Largs, he was talking about how there was a standard way of building attacks that were taught there, which was right back passing to the right winger and then right back overlapping the right winger and um, right winger had to give it back to him and put across and he said, you know, I look the, the 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 education we got there was great, but why would you want to do that? Um you're you're just letting the opposition defence come back. Once you get your winger one on one against the, the full back, get him to attack the full back. And if you can get four or five good balls in during the game, that's four or five good scoring opportunities. Um Talking about using diagonals across the field um, and and bypassing midfield, um, talking about possession being far far less important than penetration. He's saying possession can be useless if you if all you're doing is is holding the ball but not creating chances. It's all stuff that we've be, we've become quite familiar with in the two thousands. But as you say, he was doing this in the the late seventies, early eighties. And turning a team that had very limited financial resources uh, into one of the best sides in Europe. Someone put a, a statistic out the other day in the UEFA coefficient f- during a, a five-year period in which they w- United went to the, the European Cup semi-final, went to UEFA Cup final, um, beating teams like Barcelona home and away, famously. They were the fourth highest ranked team in the entire European continent in that period. Um, this from a side that had an average attendance of about 10, 11,000 in, in Dundee, which was a city that was suffering, you know, severe economic problems at the time because of Thatcher's, uh, decisions and, and from the English, um, government. I think you, Ian, you worked with, with Jim McLean during the first part of your, um, journalistic career how did you find him as a man to 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 deal with and and his football to um report on he he has a reputation still as being notoriously difficult and angry um which was true in press conferences after games or or when he was doing uh, he was chairman of dundee united obviously as well for a long time um but i found him in conversation one-to-one to be uh, really very, very insightful and charming and and warm as well. Uh, and that's something which I always remember about him. And also, uh, I think, something he instilled in his players because I had dealings with several of his players um, subsequently, uh, notably most Paul Sturrock. And um, the way they speak about him as a father figure, but also as someone who um, educated them and whom they respected and loved for everything he'd done for them was uh, something which I've always remembered. And when I heard of his death um, earlier this week, um, I thought about that and how those people uh, who he affected uh, profoundly in their careers 
must have felt on hearing of his death. Um, but as I said right at the beginning of the uh, of you know when we introduced this section, he was a visionary, um, something which um, people don't normally or would not normally say or think about a man who was born and bred um, and made his career at one football club and not one of the recognised superpowers of even Scottish football, never mind European football. And um, so I pay my respect to him. And in a year when we've lost many of our footballing heroes, I really, really, really hope that Jim McLean is currently coaching Diego Maradona <laughs> in a five-a-side game somewhere in heaven. So, the final podcast of the transfer window in 2020. Um, we wish all of our subscribers and listeners a very happy new year. Um, as we have mentioned, it has been a very trying and testing time um, over the last 10 months or so for everyone. And we fully hope and would like things to get better next year. What you can depend upon is that the Transfer Window podcast will be your beacon of light with regards to news and analysis and insight uh, as we have been throughout the last year. If you have liked what you've heard this year, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on all notifications and you will be first to hear when we've published a new pod. Please join the discussion, and we thank you very much for this year's contributions from you with regards to um, your questions answered, as well as the debate that we've all enjoyed on our social media channels. Those channels, of course, are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And with Duncan and I, uh, individually, Duncan's on at Duncan Castles and I'm at Garbo SJ. We will be back next week in 2021. And until then, uh, as I said, have a happy new year. Stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. <laughs>